The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to the HD Insights Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communication, and Outreach at the Huntington Study Group, and your host for this program. On this episode, we caught up with Dr. Lauren Byrne. Dr. Byrne gave a platform presentation at the Huntington Study Group's annual meeting back in November on some exciting biomarker research she's been involved in. Her work on the HDCSF study has been evaluating mutant Huntington and neurofilament light. That research has now gone to peer review, and well, she'll do a much better job of telling you about the importance of the research than I could ever hope to do. The other wonderful part of our conversation was about Dr. Byrne's personal connection to the HD community. Coming from an HD family, she has channeled that motivation to fight the disease into a successful and growing career in HD research at University College London, working with and further inspired by some prominent names in the field. Dr. Byrne is also an involved advocate in HD in her local community, and more recently, in joining the board of the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization, or HDEO. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Lauren Byrne. Well, Dr. Byrne, thank you for joining us on the HD Insights podcast um, for this episode today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, first of all, um, congratulations on uh, recently passing your PhD defense back in January. And, and so let's start there. Um, can you put that accomplishment into perspective for our audience? How, how much does that mean to you personally? Um, it's a huge thing. Um, particularly um so i'm from a hd family which some people don't know some people do i'm quite open about it but um it was one thing i um wrote down to myself whenever i was getting going through genetic testing that i was going to work it was one of my reasons for getting tested is because i wanted to get into hd research um so it was quite a climactic moment um from uh 2014 when i got tested to um, getting through the other side um, and being Dr. Byrne. So um, uh, it's a long, long process. Um, a lot of sweat and tears going to doing a PhD and there's definitely low points. And um, uh, But it, it's an amazing achievement and I'm very proud of the work that I, I was able to achieve. You mentioned your, your family, and so you have a very personal connection to Huntington's disease. Can you tell us a little bit about that and, and your background and, and how much of that has really driven you in your career pursuits? Sure. Um, so I'm from a HD family based in Northern Ireland, and my dad has Huntington's disease, um, but he's from a family of eight so there's been quite a few of them that have had the gene so i've known about it the most part of my life um my granny had it um and passed away before i was born 
Um, and I had an aunt and uncle who have passed away from it, but I grew up when they were, um, I grew up around them when they were still in, in wheelchairs and um, suffering from it. Um, so it, it's always been a part of my life. Um, I, I'm one of the lucky ones, I think, that my parents were very open with me about it. Um, my mum was quite involved in some of the associations and quite well informed at, for that time. Um, so I, it's never, it was never treated as such a scary thing. Um, and it wasn't until kind of uh, late teens where I started hearing about people that were advocating for HD and having been tested. I think because previously in my family, we, there wasn't a lot of um, uh, encouragement to get tested at the time. We all lived very hopeful and positively, but um, it, there wasn't really much point to get tested, um, definitely back in Ireland anyway. And there's not much specialist care or treatments or anything like that. Um, so that was kind of the mentality in my family. But I, I remember um, uh, a few points in my life um, seeing talks from different advocates like Sarah uh, Winkless, and who's a Olympic athlete based in the UK, who has the gene. Um, Charles Sabine, who's a very well-known HD advocate. Um, people that were deciding to um, face HD um, in a very direct way. Um, and at that time, I was very interested in biology and science um, and started going that, that way with, with my um, uh, academic pursuits. So I decided to do biology for my um, undergraduate degree in university um, with not, not really the intent of getting involved in Huntington's disease research, but it kind of just progressed that way. It was every opportunity I had to do a project that was related to Huntington's I did. Um, and that around my third year in university, I discovered Jeff Carroll, Dr. Jeff Carroll, who is a very well-known Gene Carrier, who's also a scientist. He's um, one of the co-founders of HD Buzz. Um, I reached out to him at the time and wrote him a few very embarrassing uh, long essays <laughs> of kind of trying to get some support from uh, another person who's from a HD family that was interested in research and, and doing re HD research. Um, and that was before I was considering to get tested. Um, and as that went along, I became more sure I wanted to get tested as I wanted to do Hitchy research. Um, so that's kind of that transition in my life towards ending university and making those career decisions um, led me to getting tested. And then um, once I tested negative, I started my master's degree at UCL um, and joined Sarah Tabrisi's team, where I was able to do my first project in Huntington's disease research. You um, also have a very active role in the HD community through um, you know, local and, and national advocacy to an extent. Can you talk about some of the responsibilities that you currently have and, and some of those roles that you're currently serving in? Sure. Um, I, 
I've taken definitely taken an attitude of getting involved in as much as I can and probably too much some in some cases but um in the last couple of years I've um taking more roles in charities um including a local um, family association for Huntington's called the Huntington's Disease Association Northern Ireland um I joined their board of trustees a couple of years ago um as that's a quite a personal um interest in mine is developing the access to research and more specialist care in in Ireland um, as there isn't a lot going on despite kind of efforts over many years um, as all of my family are still back in in Northern Ireland and there's at this point in time very little hope that they'll um, have access to tri clinical trials or even enroll HD. Um, then last year, I, um, I've always been a big fan of, of the Huntington's Disease Youth Organization because I, I really believe in what they stand for and um, empowering and educating the younger generation impacted by HD to really take charge and, and um, of their own destiny and how they deal with HD. Um, so I was, I think it was in the HDSA convention last year, I, I found myself surrounded by several board members at the time who I didn't realise I was kind of being um, invited to, to, to join the board. And, and since then, um, we had our first face-to-face -face board meeting at HSG um, in Sacramento, the, the annual meeting, um, which has led to a whole, um, a very exciting kind of restructuring for H the HD youth organization um, so I'm now going to be a co-chair of a newly formed research committee um, yeah and then other activities that I've been involved with is more awareness um, communicating research the current research to family members um, as well some projects um, with Roche and Genentech so I try and do my bit. Who are who are some of the other people that have really inspired you or that you've looked to as, as mentors? I know you mentioned Jeff Carroll mm -hmm. um, when you first got involved and then uh, you went to work, or when you were in, in school, um, started working with Sarah Tabrizi. Um, well, yeah, um, I think probably Sarah Tabrizi was one of the, the first people particularly scientifically who was inspirational um i was in another university imperial college london in um a base in london in the uk um and i was trying to reach out to people to do some work experience and and learn about what kind of huntington disease research was happening that i might be able to kind of get involved with and that's how i found out about sarah tabrisi and was immediately kind of in all of her as a strong um, woman who's le leading the field um, and the particular focus that her team has in in the clinical and observational um, side of things. Um, a for me, a lot of my research focuses on clinical the clinical aspect and how we can advance therapeutic um, development in HD. So I was really interested in what she was doing. Um, so. Um, when I um, was in my final year university, I, I, I knew I wanted to go to UCL and if I could get into the group as a kind of foot in the door. Um, 
and I did luckily enough although at that stage she didn't know who I was <laughs> so um, I've had her work a few years before she um, uh, knew who I was um, and at that stage I um, I had the opportunity to meet Ed Wild uh, who's my been my boss for the last uh, five years um, I knew of him before as I as most kind of family members do who know about HG Buzz and I'd watched a lot of his and, and Jeff's videos online so when I first kind of introduced myself to him and volunteered to um, learn more about his research it was in a kind of secret um, uh, meeting a kind of personal celebrity or um, a HG rock star so um, although we can't tell him that now, he hopefully can't listen to this. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and then I think the more I've gotten into the HD field, it's just full of so many inspirational people. Um, I've made so many friends, um, and it was incredible to find out that there's so many, so much more people um, from HD families involved in the field um, than. I recently knew so um, all with their own kind of passions and areas of research that they're interested in or other aspects of, of making the HD community better. It, that, that's a good point to follow up on and I wanted to ask you, you, you bring, you know, coming from an HD family, you bring, you know, what seems like a, a, you know, a fairly unique experience to the research field. Was there anything that surprised you um, when you first got into research in terms of the perspective of, you know, scientists or other professionals that maybe didn't have that, that you know, personal type of family experience that you had um, that you've been able to kind of help, um, you know, connect those two points of view, the family, the family perspective and the scientific uh, perspective? Actually, in a way, I was more pleasantly surprised um, at how well everyone understood it. Um, coming from a HD family back in Ireland where the average clinical care team or doctor or social worker has never encountered someone with Huntington's disease or knows very little about the actual needs of the HD patient, um, you get a little sceptical about professionals. Um, and then I entered the field of the actual HD specialist field. Um, I was pretty much blown away, particularly my, at, at UCL, um, the specialist multidisciplinary team that they have there are really amazing. And I don't think the patients in, in London or, or and around London realize how lucky they are to have such a devoted um, service. Um, and at least in, in our team at UCL, everyone's so, um, I think the patients and family members are at the, the forefront of everything we do, which from talking to colleagues outside of HD or um, other, other researchers, I think the HD field is quite a unique field, probably because of the family aspect and the collaborative nature that's been driven probably historically by you know um really back from nancy wexler and and the kind of forces that from families driving researchers to work together um for the 
the ultimate benefit of patients rather than than their own careers um so that's was the biggest thing to learn and and um, i was so proud to find out that i'm definitely biased but um <laughs> uh, i think in terms of what i've done to help other researchers understand it um i don't know <laughs> um i'm just always there to answer i'm very open about it with anybody i work with um when i first joined the group i did a kind of introduction to my family um, and my experience and i've always had an open door in terms of asking about that um, but for me even personally it's been great to be surrounded by people that get it um, professionally um, i always have people i can ask about my own family now without feeling i'm burdening burdening them um, uh, which was a bit of a revelation when I first joined the research field where before you don't really talk openly with friends that have not don't really understand Huntington's disease um, and you tend to kind of deal with things on your own whereas now I have people I can talk to about it. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Dr. Byrne, I'd like to switch gears now and, and talk about some of the, the recent research that you've been involved with. You mentioned um, being at the, the Huntington Study Group's annual meeting back in November. And, and at that meeting, you presented a, uh, a platform discussion on a promising biofluid biomarker. And I, mm -hmm. as I understand it, that same research has now moved into, into the preprint process and is undergoing peer review. Uh, let's let's start there with the what was the background behind how that project initially came about or was proposed? Sure. Um, so the research is based on something we call biofluid biomarkers, um, and biomarkers are just um, things that we can measure in humans in different ways, whether it's a blood test or um, uh, a urine sample or even a, a brain scan. And they can tell us about how someone's disease is progressing or um, whether to treat someone with a certain drug or et cetera. So that's kind of the foundation of um, what we try and to work towards at UCL in the HD Centre um, for the reason that we need better tools to run clinical trials um, and to, do, to tell us whether a drug is working and also when to start treating once we do eventually have a disease-modifying therapy for HD. Um, so this project was in a, a 
a disease cohort called HDCSF. CSF stands for cerebrospinal fluid, um, which is the, just the fluid that bathes the brain. It's in our spinal cord. And the reason it's such a useful sample to look at is in HD specifically, is because we know that Huntington's disease is a brain disease. And this CSF, or spinal fluid, um, bathes the brain and happens to be enriched for all these proteins that are specific to brain um, health and processes. So it's a good um, resource to collect and something that's been happening a lot in, in the HD field. If anybody takes part in HD Clarity, um, a lot of that is to collect these biofluids of CSF from blood for these purposes. HDCSF was a study designed by Ed Wild, my boss, um, and it's the uh, single site study based in London of 80 participants. Um, and these are, are people with Huntington's disease um, with symptoms, as well as those who carry the gene that um, for Huntington's disease but don't have symptoms, and not, as well as healthy controls um, to compare with. Um, and they were their 80 participants were followed for two years so it's the first um, CSF collection or large CSF collection to have longitudinal or what we call longitudinal sampling um, or samples over time um, and previously we've had a lot of progress with new biomarkers or potential biomarkers in in CSF and in blood um, and one that people might have heard a bit more about because of the Huntington lowering trials is CS CSF levels of mutant Huntington protein. Um, and as we know, Huntington pr protein is, is the protein um, that is um, damaged in people that have uh, the gene that causes Huntington's disease. They have, the mutation causes a mutated form of, of the protein that is toxic to brain cells. Um, and a few years ago, back in 2015, um, scientists, including Ed and colleagues, developed a way to measure this protein, which is at really, really low concentrations in spinal fluid, but um, which has allowed us to show that these new drugs that are being tested in trials um, are doing what they were meant to do, and that's to lower the Huntington protein in the brain, in and around the brain. Um, so some people have heard about that. We are looking at that protein or the, this, this research that is um, hopefully going to be published in the next few months um, was looking at that protein in people that have not had any new drugs just to understand how it um, changes over time. Um, and this information is extremely important to um, the whole therapeutic development in that it tells us how the protein should be changing in normal disease so that if uh, a drug that is successfully slowing the disease down, we'll be able to detect that um, more accurately. Um, another protein that, is, that we're looking at in this research is neurofilament-like protein. Um, and this is a, a protein that's found in, in brain cells. And whenever there's brain cell injury, there is a release of, of that protein into the CSF or spinal fluid, but also we are able to measure it in blood. Um, and that um, we 
published that a few years ago in 2017, that this blood test can tell us about how the ongoing damage or um, um, health of, of brain cells in, in Huntington's disease. Um, so in this study, we compared those two um, proteins, neurofilament light or NFL, um, with mutant Huntington um, to compare their ability um, to predict clinical change over time um, or um, to compare their prognostic abilities. Um, we also showed how the, those markers change over time, over the course of, of Huntington's disease. So we look at their what we call longitudinal direct um, trajectories. Um, um, what we noticed or, or, or shown was that the, all three of them had very distinct um, trajectories over time compared to that in controls. Um, and we can see changes in people that, in these markers, um, in those um, people who have the gene for Huntington's but are yet to have symptoms. And that the changes um, with time are related to the mutation that causes Huntington's disease. So those who have higher CAG recreates tend to have um, higher increases and earlier increases in the markers. Um, and in terms of their prognostic ability, we find that neurofilament light protein had the most, or, uh, had the strongest ability to um, detect changes in clinical outcome over time. So a single measurement of the, this neurofilament light that protein um, predicted um, or was associated with how much deterioration happened over the two years in clinical outcomes. And we were able to use this data then to do what we call simulate a clinical trial um, to help um, or to kind of theorize how we could use these biomarkers in the future to run more efficient clinical trials. So biomarkers could eventually be validated to be used as, as what we call surrogate endpoints in trials. So a surrogate is something that can represent, it's a surrogate of clinical improvement. So if we can show that uh, in a biomarker that a reduction in, in its level will show clinical improvement in so many months, but it might be quicker, you might see a quicker response in the biomarker. It could potentially allow us to run trials over shorter periods of time or less um, or lower numbers of participants. Um, and I think that's it. When, when you talk about the prognostic ability of these, these biomarkers, was it, is it um, prognostic for onset of symptoms or progression through the disease, or, or did, did you um, observe findings for both of those? So it's important as well to highlight here, this is obviously ag aggregated data. It's not um, at the at the perspective of an individual. So we wouldn't be able to look at someone's neurofilament level and say, you're going to have this much brain atrophy in the next two years, or um, it just, um, we see statistical associations. Um, and yeah, with the prognostic, I mean, over um, various domains of, of 
measures that we use to assess Huntington's disease. So we have clinical measures and they include um, aspects of the Unified Huntington's Disease Rating Scale. Um, and we incorporated the new composite score for that, which um, uh, combines four aspects of that, including funct the functional capacity, um, motor score, and two of the cognitive assessments to create one composite score. Um, and these biomarkers um, had an association with the decline in that score, um, as well as the individual um, components of that, of the UHDRS, um, as well as um, brain volume and atrophy. Can you talk about specifically what participants in the study had to do for this? I know a lot of people are, mm -hmm. are familiar, um, you know, like with the Roche trial and what you know, the, the mechanism of um, delivery through mm -hmm. CSF, but not everybody may be familiar with, with what that really entails. Sure. Um, so our subjects were absolutely amazing and um, it took part in a, so this study was linked to Enroll HD. So a lot of the assessments um, and, you know, clinical aspects of that were very similar to Enroll. Um, and it, um, for anyone who's done HD Clarity, the collection of spinal fluid is very much the same. But for those who haven't, um, don't know about uh, lumbar puncture or spinal tap, um, it's a very common procedure, which um, sounds a lot scarier than it is. Um, I've had one myself um, after the study. Um, I did it for uh, another um, study at UCL called the Young Adult Study that was led by Sarah Tabrisi. Um, and people, it's very similar to, um, or the area of the back is very similar where, um, women that are giving birth would have an epidural in injection because the lower part of the spine. And basically the reason why they access the spinal fluid from that part of your, your, your spine is that there's a, a canal of, of space in the spine at that point where there's the spinal cord is ends. Um, I don't know if I'm going into too much detail here, um, but the there's um, the spinal cord ends at your belly button. So then below that is just nerves. So there's no risk or at least very little risk of any um, serious damage to your nerves or anything like that. Because um, I think from what I've heard from people that are asking about the procedure, their um, first kind of questions are like, can I get paralysis or um, long-term damage from, from this? But the whole point of doing it in that space is that it's, it's, a fluid, it's where most of the fluid is um, and the spinal cord is not there. Um, and it's done under local anesthetic. So like uh, injection when, you're at the dentist getting a tooth out or a filling. It's a similar um, procedure um, and that can sting for a few seconds. Um, and then it should be pain-free. So I think nine times out of 10, a lumbar puncture is very straightforward, particularly in the in research setting. All of our doctors are uh, very specialist and have done hundreds and if not more um, lumbar punctures. Um, and a lot of these doctors are the same doctors that are taking, or the doctors in the intrathecal injection trials. 
So the difference between a lumbar puncture and the tri the intrathecal injection um, in our study in HC Clarity, um, we have the needle goes in and then we allow the fluid to drip out and we collect it. Whereas in the intrathecal injections that are where the drug would go be injected into the spine in the trials, um, instead of um, they would remove some of the fluid with a syringe and then inject the fluid with the drug or placebo into the spine. I think that, and that's, you know, a really great point. And I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, you know, uh, to, to somebody who's not familiar with it, or um, if you're like me and you have an aversion to needles, something like uh, a lumbar puncture sounds potentially horrifying, but you know, like you said, these are, you know, the, these are people that have done hundreds of them and are, are well-trained. And um, so I appreciate you, you bringing that up. Um, Dr. Byrne, in terms of this research, were there any findings that really surprised you or any assumptions maybe that you had going in that were, uh, that may not have been um, reflected in the result? Um. I think the biggest surprise um, was we thought meat and hunting tin would be had would have the strongest associations perhaps with um, the clinical manifestations of disease um, because it's the root cause of it. But um, as we thought about it more, um, it makes sense that neurofilament, which is a marker of the pathology and, and damage to neurons, which is the precursor to the symptoms, um, would be closer associated with those features. Whereas meat Huntington is kind of the most upstream event, perhaps. This is obviously more hy hypothesizing here. Um, I think that was probably one of the, the most surprising. But that being said, Meat Huntington is still um, has a lot of prognostic value compared to other potential biomarkers. Um, I think the fact that the blood test of neurofilament is is such a strong biomarker for clinical um, progression um, was probably the is probably the most exciting finding and maybe surprising um, even compared to measuring the same protein in the CSF, um, which is obviously great news for patients um, because it's a blood test rather than having to go through the lumbar puncture that we just discussed. Um, and it means we, it opens a lot of doors um, for the research that we can do or retrospective research that we can do on this biomarker because a lot of studies that have already happened will have definitely had blood samples um, and that's something where I'm going with um, my future research and my postdoc is to try and get as much information on this this neurofilament marker um, in whatever samples that we have available to us in the HD field, which is quite a quite a bit. We have studies like Predict HD and all the Track HD samples, um, all these large cohorts of people that have given samples. And clinical and MRI information for many years, and and sometimes not really understanding why they have to give so many um so much 
blood or biosamples, what will it be used for? Um, this was a prime example of, of a, something that came when technology advanced, that we were really glad that we could go back to those samples that were collected years ago and without really knowing that they would be this useful. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I was actually going to ask you if if this research has um, brought up any questions or that, you know, will spawn future research activity or, as you said, that, you know, even the retrospective um, research review. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Byrne, in terms of, um, you know, the timeline for publication, I know you you alluded to a few months. Is there a is there a timeline that you expect for completion um, of the peer review to occur? and um, oh. you know, next steps for publication? In, a, in the kind of science review gods, we don't kind of um, make claims of, of such as that would, we can't uh, <laughs> risk that. Um, it's all very um, scary at this stage once you've sent the baby off to be um, <laughs> reviewed. Um, so I am not going to say anything. Um, I think uh, if people would like to see the data, it's available online um on med archive and we can share a link with the podcast um and yeah and it will be announced i'm sure with a stream of tweets from ed wild when the actual <laughs> article gets posted online so hopefully people will will hear about it if it and when it does get accepted oh per perfect we'll definitely we'll post that link for um folks at the the end of the podcast um are there any, in terms of the, the HDCSF uh, study, are, are there other, any other colleagues that, that you wanted to, to mention that you know, really um, help you with the, with the effort or really help make a difference on it? Yeah, for sure. Um, all of this work um, has been a joint effort with my colleague, Philippe Rodriguez, who is a clinical fellow that also works with Ed Wild. Um, we've worked from the very beginning of the study um, and he's taken, did pretty much all of the lumbar punctures. Um, so we've been in double act through the whole, um, the, from start to finish. Um, so he's, it'll be uh, Rodriguez Bernadal um, 2020, hopefully. Um, and the whole UCL HD team, so this is um, a lot of the co-authors in the paper are uh, my colleagues at UCL. Um, we have a fantastic neuroimaging team, um, including Rachel Scahill and Ellie Johnson. Um, who um, helped analyze all of the MRI scans for the study. Um, and the nice thing about this study is that it's a continue, it's a research for, a resource, sorry, for the future development of biofluid biomarkers. So we still have um, lots of CSF and blood left over and are continuing to come up with new prospective um, biomarkers to investigate um, that, might be useful in their own in their own rights um, and uh, in my in terms of future work with other colleagues maybe outside of this um, I am hoping to get involved with better developing better Huntington assays um, kind of from one thing out of this work it's made us realize we still need even more sensitive robust Huntington assays and assays that can measure different types of Huntington species um, of, of the Huntington protein um, to really understand what we're changing 
and what's going on in the pathology um, when it comes to Huntington lowering trials. Um, and for that, I'm starting to work with um, Dr. Rachel Harding, who's based in Toronto, um, to understand how to characterize um, antibodies, which are really the um, core um, parts or parts of, of assays that make them specific to the proteins that we want to measure. Um, and I'm working with some colleagues at UBC, Nick Karen, to look at this protein neurofilament and also meet Huntington in animal models um, and answer some of those biological questions related to treatment and the changes in these biomarkers in ways that we can't do in humans. Um, so we've been working on a study treating um, a mice model of PhD with, with Huntington lowering agents to see how this affects the neurofilament and and Huntington, so there's a lot of work going on, which is exciting. Well, Dr. Byrne, I know the HD community and the research field is stronger and better for having you in it, and so I appreciate you know the passion that you've you've brought to this. And I also want to thank you for taking time out um, to speak with us today for the podcast. Yeah, not a problem. I'm I'm delighted to do it. Um, sorry if I <laughs> ramble a bit. I get um, on a tangent sometimes. And <laughs> no, no, this is perfect. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And um, for podcast listeners, I will share that URL um, that Dr. Byrne mentioned in a moment. But, but again, um, in the meantime, I, I know you're also dealing with um, you know a lockdown situation in the UK with the uh, with the COVID nineteen. So. Um, you know, we hope you continue to stay safe and healthy, and that uh, that uh, everybody is is doing their their part to uh, to be well and get us through this as quickly as possible. Yeah, and the research, Hitchy research, is still happening despite lockdown. So, um, allowing us to write up and analyze data, which uh, so if anybody's worried that it's slowing down research, there's still plenty we can and do well at home. I am extremely thankful to Dr. Byrne for her time on this episode. There is such incredible research being done around the world by passionate and dedicated people. Dr. Byrne's involvement and work is truly a reflection of how driven this community is. If you're interested in reading the preprint edition of the HD CSF study, you'll find a web link included in the description for this podcast. There is no charge or subscription needed to view it. Before wrapping up this episode, I want to again take the opportunity to reach out to our audience about a project that HD Insights, in collaboration with colleagues at Vanderbilt University and Roche Genentech, are embarking upon that aims to shed light on racial, ethnic, economic, and geographic disparities that impact access to quality HD care, education, and community connection. As part of this project, we're reaching out to HD clinicians, advocates, researchers, and study coordinators who might be listening and interested in sharing their stories and experiences working with diverse populations impacted by HD. For example, what inequities do you see in your HD practice? What unique challenges have you or the community you serve faced, in particular when it comes to health inequities in outreach, access to care, willingness to engage, and affordability of health care? 
we would like to select a few stories and individuals to highlight in an article and future podcast with the intention of lending a greater voice to this experience. If you would like to share a story for consideration, please contact me by email at kevin.gregory at hsglimited.org. While this initial call to action focuses on the researcher and clinician point of view, we recognize the importance of other perspectives to this overall conversation, most notably those of the patients, families, and research participants. Additional efforts will focus on bringing a spotlight to this group, which in the end is the group in most need of the microphone. Until next time on the HD Insights Podcast, I'm Kevin Gregory. Thank you for spending time with us. Stay safe, be well, look out for each other, and we look forward to bringing you our next episode. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.